This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 922, A Conversation with Dan DiDio. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 922. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is my conversation with Dan DiDio. Before I jump into the episode, uh, I just wanted to do a bit of an intro here. Uh, Dan DiDio, I feel like, needs no introduction in comic book circles after working 20 years at DC Comics. However, he also came up working uh, originally at ABC Television and also working at Mainframe Entertainment, where he was instrumental in uh, developing uh, one of my favorite you know, seasons of a show, reboot season three. Uh, he also worked, obviously, in, in season four and other projects at Mainframe. But specifically, we talked about uh, his work during season three. Uh, so we actually spent a lot of time talking about reboot. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a big favorite of mine. I have the DVD box set. I've shown it to my eight-year-old son. I love watching Reboot. I think it's really, really a well-done show, and um, you know, and just well animated. Looks great. Great story. So we, do, we definitely get into a lot of Reboot here. Uh, I do want to thank everyone on the Marvel Masterworks forum and on the Comic Geek Speak Facebook group who submitted questions. Um, I ended up using elements from a lot of them. Uh, didn't specifically uh, end up doing shoutouts, which I sometimes do, but it just didn't really fit where we were going. Uh, but I did definitely pull from some of the questions in particular. So thank you to everyone who did submit questions. I, uh, again, cultivated from a lot of them uh, when putting together the questions and you know actually positioning the questions to Dan on the episode. So thank you so much for listening to this episode and downloading it. Uh, if you're new to the show, we have a great library of a previous uh, conversation with episodes where I've talked with a lot of different creators. Um, just off the top of my head, Chip Zdarsky, Robert Venditti, Ron Friends, Tom DeFalco, Chris Claremont. Uh, there's a lot more, but that's just uh, uh, some of the ones that immediately came to mind. Uh, Ron Friends has been on the show, I believe, eight times. So if you're a big Ron Friends fan, you're in the right place. Anyways, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again so much for downloading this episode. And without further ado, let's jump right into the episode with Dan DiDio. Enjoy. Dan, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Adam. So we, we only have a short period of time, and there's so many questions I could ask you, but I would be horribly remiss if I didn't at least spend some of the time asking you about what it was like working on Reboot back in the 1990s. I was a, a huge fan from what I've heard. Uh, it was, I guess, the Canadian audience that helped keep that show alive uh, into its third and fourth yeah. season, so I'm going to take credit for that because I was watching it when those were airing on YTV. But what was it like kind of working on that project first when you're working with ABC and then actually working directly for Mainframe? You know, actually, it, it, I, I love talking about this because it's, it's actually one of, one of my favorite periods of time in my life working. Probably, in some ways, even more fun than working at DC because working with Mainframe and working on Reboot, I mean, we were, we were, we were paving new ground. We were, we were out there pushing a type of animation that was basically only seen in a couple of feature films. And to be the, the first company to actually be out there with uh, computer-generated uh, animation and cartoons and trying to convince everybody this was the wave of the future was, was, was a fascinating moment. I mean, I was at ABC. I was the executive on the show. I came in just right after it started up, um, uh, but was there before it actually first premiered. Um, I, we were there for the first couple of seasons. We, I was there for all the problems that came out. 
with just understanding the process, how to make it work better, how to streamline it. Um, they had some brilliant people at the studio. I wish I could name them all, um, but everybody at Mainframe was extraordinarily dedicated, incredibly talented in whatever job they had. Um, and they found a way to make it work. And not only that, but once they did, um, by the time I joined them, because when I left ABC um, at the time that Disney came in and took over the company, um, they offered me the spot to come in as the story editor. And I had a, a conversation with one of the creators of the show, Ian Pearson, who is the CEO and actually the founder of Mainframe. And he basically came to me and said, you know that show we wanted to do but kept on getting shut down by the ABC censors? He goes, well, how about we go ahead and do that if up in Canada? YTB's got a, has fully supported us to do the show we want. And I came in on season three and, and for season four and, and, and just had a blast. And, you know, it just wasn't about, it just wasn't about reboot at the time too. It was just about the fact that, um, it was the place to be for people breaking into the computer animation business. And, um, we just, we just had so much fun just, just proving people wrong and showing people what computer animation could be. And, uh, that show led the way. It was, it was a really special time. Now, it's fascinating some of the, the talent you had writing some of those, you know, those episodes in season three, too. You had Len Wein, you had DC Fontana. Like, what was it like kind of working with these incredible names? Well, you know what? It was wonderful because, uh, you know, you know, Len and DC, um, these are people who I was fans of, but actually I was friends with Len from, uh, from the time at ABC, you know, working on some development with him and Mark Wolfman in the days. Uh, Christy Marks also was somebody I worked with at ABC, so I brought a lot of very talented folks um, that we were doing um, basically cartoons with up for ABC, and then they came in and they really cut loose on the series, um, which was which was fun for me because you know it was a relationship that, that started out as a fan, but honestly, it turned out to be a wonderful working relationship too. You definitely worked on some of. Uh, you directly wrote some of my favorite episodes of that season. I, to, to this date, I feel embarrassed to say that I think I only know the prisoner because of your work on the reboot episode. Yeah, I mean that, that's, a, that's a, there's a weird story behind that because that was actually a last minute script. Um, I was I did the first uh, my first one, which was Firewall, which was my James Bond spoof a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and then what happened was. Um, we ran into some production problems and budget problems, and ultimately what happened was the script that we had uh, for that episode was just too expensive to produce, and we had a can it. Uh, and then we had to turn a script around very quickly, so the gag was to try to find ways to reuse old bits from and old sets from pre-existing shows, and that way we were able to save some money on the budget because a lot of sets and characters were already built. So we had to work with all the, the existing parameters of what was reboot at the time, and it came together really nicely. And it was a, it was a fun, crazy little episode, and uh, I had a lot of that one. I had a lot of fun with that was that was really uh, we had our backs to the wall. But I always find that when you put yourself in a corner and put some real interesting creative restraints on yourself, you usually find yourself find ways to be even more creative to find your ways out of that box you're you're, you're sitting in. How did you find in general, like, I mean, obviously you had, you know, the creative bug, but writing for television, I mean, obviously then writing for comics later, what was that process for you to kind of be able to kind of write it yourself? It was, it was weird because most of my writing was basically I did a lot of, um, uh, a lot of articles for magazines and for a lot of fanzines and a lot of things of that nature. So anything that I was doing creatively was really, really, um, under the radar, meaning it was for a lot of small black and white press and things of that nature. So that's where I was doing it because my primary job was was first with ABC and then with 
with mainframe, but I always loved comics, so I was always finding a way to write with that. And, you know, we were working so hard on those scripts, and basically, um, in the early days, we were rewriting almost every script from that first and second season, because once we understood the process um, of, of how computer animation worked, um, we had to go back in and really dissect every script and rebuild them. And, and th there was this one moment of epiphany that I remember with Ian that I, I never forgot. And it was this moment when, where we realized that computer animation was closer to live animation than cell. Mm. And we were writing all these shows like they were cell animated shows. And because of that, we were just collapsing the budget and just collapsing the schedule because it, it took so much time to create the things that normally are just quickly painted as a background. Mm. So once we looked at what how people handle a live action show and, and, and constructed it as live action, meaning we had sets, we had a certain amount of characters, we had a certain amount of things, then we realized it was a lot easier to move through the production. So once we had that epiphany, though, we had to go back and almost have the, the first 10 episodes, not first 10 episodes, about, uh, the, about six of the episodes rewritten from that point forward, you know? Wow. Crazy time. For sure, that it was, it was all it was all it was all new territory. Nobody knew what it was. They were kind of making it up as they go along. There's, there's a great reboot story about how <laughs> I can tell the story now uh, about how when uh, the ABC executives went up to the mainframe studios to to ensure that they had the right size of a production facility to, in order to handle what they were what they were committing to. And they tell the story about how they only had a half dozen or so people, and what they used to do is. They would take them into one office, and then after they would leave, they would take those people from the first office and move them into the third office. So it looked like it was the bigger staff there was. But all they kept on doing is recycling people through, and they kept on seeing the same people over and over again. <laughs> and nobody realized it. <laughs> but that story is so crazy because it sounds like if you did that on a TV show, you'd be like, well, that's not believable. Oh, no. You, you had people in the mainframe days. They were, they were sitting in uh, – they, they were sleeping in – you know they would they would they would do because it was all keyframe animation, which means it wasn't motion capture. These guys were literally animating the characters frame by frame, um, which is just a, just brilliant. And uh, what was fun was, uh, <laughs> uh, boy, uh, you know what was fun is that they would used to sit at the, the computers and in sleeping bags and <laughs> and fall asleep at their console because once they finished the animated scene, they had to send it to the render farm. And that took a while. So they would literally sleep at their at their station while the while the scene was rendering. And then when the scene finished rendering, they go and, and do the next scene. And uh, I mean, that's how dedicated these, these guys were. It, it, like I said, it was I've never seen a, a better and more brilliant staff of workers um, <laughs> than my than my time at Mayfair. That uh, that season again, season three is is so it stands out so much to me because you guys first of all went through so much story, but really put your characters through their paces. And I think that especially looking at the animated landscape at the time, I don't think anyone was doing the serialized to the degree you guys were doing and really pushing things uh, forward. I mean, and really, there's, there's a, I was going to say there's a really weird story behind that too. We were in uh, we were in Los Angeles and uh, we went to a, a, a steakhouse. Myself, Ian, and, and Gavin Blair. I believe it was just the three of us. And uh, we were sitting at a table, um, and there's this, it had, you know when they have like paper tops that you can write on? Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there, we're sitting there eating steak, drinking wine, smoking cigars in this, in this restaurant, writing out the entire season on this tabletop, this piece of paper. <laughs> and because we were running out of paper, we kept on folding it and folding it so that by the time it was done, it was this weird, 
origami thing with everything written in weird places all folded up and you had to remember the folds to understand the order of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Gavin still has that sheet. Um, but that's like the holy grail of season three. That, that the season three was figured out on a on a on a, a, on a, on a, a restaurant tabletop. <laughs> <laughs> And as you said, I guess if it had been a traditional kind of network of being, being involved, I guess season three really couldn't have existed because it oh, must no. have been a hard sell uh, otherwise. Oh, no, that, that's, that's, that, that's why that's how it happened, if you want to be honest, is that we talked about doing a show like that and we weren't able to do it at ABC. It kept on getting shut down and it kept on being. Um, actually, there was one episode that was complete, just to show the arbitrary nature of of, of, uh, of standards, the broadcast standards of the time, there was one script that was completely rejected, um, and then Ian called up and explained the script over the phone, and then it was completely accepted with no notes. <laughs> and I mean, when, you, when you're dealing with that type of logic, it's very hard um, to stay motivated because you're you're at the whims of some people that are not part of the process and not understanding the logic behind it and and not interested in most cases. And uh, so that's why we, we always had this pent-up desire to do a much more interesting and wilder type of show. And they were concerned about, naturally, when you're doing parody, about how close you get to other concepts. And there was a lot of concern on the network side that kept on shutting down everything. And uh, so once we finished with the U.S. network and YTV got behind it, they got behind it 100%. It was, it was one of the number one shows on YTV, if I'm not mistaken. Running at six o'clock in the afternoon and in the evening, it was the number one show, um, their show, and uh, so they it was very successful for them, and we knew we had to back it up. But the fun part and the win was after we had produced all that, I was able at the time, well, as an executive with Mainframe, uh, to sell uh, reboot into the U.S. Uh, mm. for Cartoon Network, and then it gave it a new life in the U.S. and it gave it a new audience. It gave it a chance that it didn't have on ABC from the original run. For sure. I mean, yeah, the, those first two seasons are so different from what came afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a night and day. Night and day. When you're working at, at Mainframe, how much, like, obviously you're primarily working on Reboot, but how involved were you with the other projects that were happening at that time? Um, I was probably most heavily involved in, uh, in Shadow Raiders, uh, which was War Planets in the U.S., and that was the one that I was working very closely with Len on building and working with Ian on and, and really building that out. We had... Uh, at that, at that time, Brendan McCarthy was the art director uh, for Mainframe, and he just was, he was just knocking it out of the park with every design. And the chat, that was when we first had the, they were so successful on Beast Wars and Beast Machines that they became the company that brought toys to life mm. at Mainframe. And no stupider toy that we could ever receive was two planets fighting. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? And, and finding a way to create a story out of that, but we did. And that was a lot of fun, you know, and that, that was, that's, like I said, it, it was it was an interesting thing because we really built a long arc. We had plans for a second, for more seasons. Um, and then ultimately the toy line didn't work, So, but when that happens, the show doesn't work either, so the show goes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we felt good with that. But, I mean, there was a point there. At the, at Mainframe's peak, they they produced 52 half hours of television plus one directed video in one year. Wow. And I, liked, I, always, I always love to quote that at that moment, when we had that much project or product run into the studio, um, we were actually producing more computer animation uh, than every other studio combined at that time. <laughs> wow. 
I believe it though. I mean, I, I again, I was a, a you know a, a younger person at that time, and you know, re, um, mainframe was you know this name that I trusted because again, it gave me a reboot, it gave me Beast Wars, and so whenever mainframe had a new show, I was like, I gotta watch this. Yeah, no, and we and like I said, we had a blast. We just we had a blast every time. We just kept on pushing the envelope. I mean, the the one thing, the the only real regret was we never were able to really break into the film business working at mainframe but then again we own tv so you know it's it's one of those things that looks better off from the outside than from the inside but mm-hmm. i mean i have to say that as a, as as a television producer and television production company the mainframe was unparalleled mm-hmm. So what what did end up kind of leading you into the, the comic book field? Because obviously that's very different from where you've been spending time, you know, again, working for ABC, then working for Mainframe directly, and then you're over at DC. How did that transition kind of go? Well, it's, 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 it's a weird circumstance all combined. I was at Mainframe for a while. The people that brought me in were, were on their way out, so my connection to the staff was this tight. I was running the New York offices we still have that sense of distance as well. Hmm. So I was getting feeling more and more remote from the, from the studios. You know, I still cared about everybody that was there, though, that I come up with. Um, and then ultimately, a couple of things happened simultaneously. I, I got exhausted. I was, I was doing a lot of flying. You know, I was living in New York. I was running an office in L.A. Uh, we had a Vancouver studio, and we had, were up in Toronto for YTV and some of the other connections we had for the company. So I was on a lot of planes. Hmm. Um, and it, it was starting to burn me out. You know, I did enjoy writing, and at the time, uh, with my spot at Mainframe at the time, I, I got completely out of the writing. I was much more involved in, in some of the business development and marketing and sales more so, you know, just to keep the company going and, and bring the money in. Um, so I was getting away, from, getting further away from the creative. Um, I, was, I was doing some comic book writing on my own, well, not on my own, but with uh, Jimmy Pamiati. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had gotten the job on Superboy. Um, and I was, talk- I was starting to work over there, but as this, there's two stories that happened. The first story is that um, I flew out of Newark Airport on September 11th into Toronto. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and, and got caught in Toronto because, because the border shut down and everything happened. Um, and I realized I had to slow down on my flying because of that. You know, naturally everybody got a little more skittish. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but um, I, uh, um, I, I sort of realized I've, I've got to try to simplify life a little bit. And uh, through a connection I had uh, at Warner Brothers, they introduced me to Paul Levitz. And then Paul and I had discussed for a while about some, you know, he was trying to bring somebody in from the outside to DC with a different perspective, but with comic book knowledge, which I had. Um, and we, we spent about two to three months, you know, talking through potential ideas and how they, we can work together. And then after about a three month period of time, Paul offered me a position, um, and even though it, it was, it felt like a little bit of a step back from from where I stood at Mainframe. It seemed like a right step forward um, in order to bring some sort of um, consistency to my day. So uh, I, I made the switch into comics. I always loved comics. Um, never thought I'd be there as long as I was. Um, you know, I, I was there, and within my first year, because I was the outsider coming in, um, it was extremely. Um, uh, and frustrating is probably a word. I don't know. There's a lot of things combative to the word. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I was the outsider coming in, offering suggestions to folks that have been there for a long time. Naturally, it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. I think that was probably one of the reasons why I came in anyway and why I was brought in. Um, not, not the way you want to work. You want to work together with people, but it's sort of coming in and trying to take stuff apart and figuring it out. But the good part that Paul did, he gave me some time to really learn about the industry and publishing because I've never really worked 
in the publishing business, so I had to learn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent the first few months learning the publishing business, and then once I did, um, then I decided to roll up my sleeves and get involved in stuff. And uh, and uh, you know, I actually thought I was going to leave after the first year, but after the first year, then pulled off into the executive editor position, and because uh, that was not my first job, I was vice president of editorial, which was a little ambiguous in its title and responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, um, but I wound up stepping into the executive editor position, and then then we were off to the races. For sure, one thing I was always very impressed by you is that whenever I go to conventions, um, you brought so much energy to DC panels. I remember uh, particularly in like 2008, I want to say I was at a, a Philly convention, and uh, you know I I was always a Marvel guy growing up, and so I would go to these panels, and I, I would go to everyone's, and I'd go to DC's panel, and you had so much energy, and you were really interacting with the crowd, and then I would go to a Marvel panel, which in theory has characters that I liked more, but I found that they're always so boring in comparison, which I always feel bad saying, but you brought an energy. And a, and a gregariousness to uh, the DC convention presence. What kind of led to you to make sure that you kind of took the bull by the horns and were really representing the company in that way? Because I feel like up until you kind of doing that, I never felt like DC had a, as much of a, a presence like that or like a person you could be like, well, that, that guy's DC. But then you felt like, you know, you created this persona and you really took that, uh, you know, took hold of that. What kind of led to that decision? Or was that just you being you? A little bit, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, basically Carnival Barker when you step on that stage. But <laughs> um, you, but but that's that's the gig, you know. You want to you, you know, I, it's difficult. Again, I always you have to bring pieces together. It's not a straight. Nothing's ever a straight line. Um, you know, I I was there's a there's a page of art in Fantastic Four Annual Number Five, uh, which is a backup story about how Stanley and Jack Kirby used to create comics. And it's there's a shot of Stan with, I, I think he has like a bucket on his head and he has a sword in his hand and <laughs> Jack's scrolling away and everybody's running away from him and there's this pure chaos in a comic book office and, and I always remember that panel, the page, and I go to myself, God, I would love to work there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that this frantic creative energy, this, this pure combustion happening of pure excitement and everybody just figuring it out and working in a room and honestly that was my the way we worked at mainframe mainframe was the most combative creative environment we were like the uh the the coyote and the sheepdog (laughs) 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 we get in the room we fight all day and then we go to the bar and have our drinks and laughs and not even because none of it was personal it was just everybody putting their creative vision in and it never was about the person it was always about the creative and i i love that I just that, that just just get, gets my, my just gets to be going. So when I when I got to DC, I was a, you know I wasn't just a fan of comics. I was a, a fan of the stories. I was a fan of comics, meaning that I I was the kid that used to read the sales figures when they used to put them in the comic books. You remember that? <laughs> I don't know if you know that. They used to when when they're on the newsstand, they had to by law list how many comics they sold, and I would buy the comics just for the ones that would list the sales for the year because I was kind of interested in how they worked, what was popular, what wasn't. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, Stanley Soapbox, and then I remember just a lot of the Stanley stuff that comes around. And then at DC, when Jeanette Kahn takes over, she brings a personality. And I'm like, oh, DC has a personality too. I didn't even know who worked there until she was there, mm. you know? And, uh, and, I'm, and I was reading for years up to that point. So... Um, I, I like that, and 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 honestly, to be very honest, um, during my time at ABC before being a mainframe, um, I had worked with Jeanette 
because I was developing the Metal Men as an animated series for ABC, and that was a set to go, uh, but it was killed when, uh, when, when Disney came in. They actually pulled the plug on the show, oh. uh, which was disappointing. Um, but but I got to meet Jeanette Kahn, I got to meet the offices, I got to be, go to D.C., so I got a sense of what it was like. And, uh, and But in my mind, it was always that Stan Lee page, you know, mm. a guy on top of a table screaming, <laughs> all acting out scenes in front of everybody else, and everybody else running in fear. Um, and that, that always stuck with me. So when I got there, you know, one of the things I said to Paul is, we got to bring some personality to us. If you want to, I said, Marvel's bringing the, their A game. They're putting it out there. They're coming at DC. They're coming at everybody. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're the bad boys. They're, 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 they're the kids on the block that are just coming out there and strutting this stuff. And everybody's swooning. And I said, we got to meet them head on. We got to have that personality. And Paul understood what I said, but he basically said, you got to earn it. Mm. Um, which was interesting and I understand it now and I understood it you know for a while and because I was like, like I was like the, uh, the, the the dog on the chain going let me go at him let me go at him <laughs> <laughs> come on I want to bring the, I want to bring the game back to them and uh, and he says no you gotta you gotta earn it basically and uh, so you know we went out there and I said we have to be we have to be bold we have to be aggressive so when I got the executive editor job um I tried a bunch of stuff, and, and none of it really worked because um, I was playing by their rules mm. a little bit. You know what they what they liked, but then Jim Lee um, comes in with Hush, and that's the game changer. Um, you know, Hush was originally built to be like the Long Halloween. Um, you know, this prestige twelve part series that sits on a shelf, high end paper, high end stock, higher price, and. Uh, Jim said no. Jim said no. He didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it. He said basically, um, I want to be the Batman artist. I want to be in Batman. I don't need a number one. I can make number six or eight be, be like the number one, but I don't want to be a number one. I want to be the regular Batman artist. Mm-hmm. So this thing that was going to be outside the line goes inside the line. And all of a sudden, it's cool to be doing the main books again because Jim Lee's doing it. Mm. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to be on the main line and they're all stopping these prestige projects that took forever to make, came out, and were forgotten. Mm. And now we're starting to see some, some talent land on our, our, on our main line now. And because that book is so doing so well, all the mistakes were made, nobody's seen it because everybody's loving Hush. You know? Oh, yeah. And then Jeff starts, pulling on, Jeff starts pulling at me going, let's do this Green Lantern thing. And that was a big deal to bring Hal Jordan back. You know, because it was a big deal to kill him. And we were going after, you know, we were going after the core DC audience. It wasn't about bringing as many new people in, it was bringing people back to the fold, people that want to see stuff again. And, and, and then Jeff kills it on, on Green Lantern. And then, okay, we're going to change the tone. Let's change the tone in terms of we're serious about what we're doing here. And then we get Brad Meltzer's identity crisis. Hmm. And now nobody knows what to expect from DC Comics anymore. It's not a safe... Somebody, people used to come to me and say, it's not a safe place anymore. And I said, thank God. You know? <laughs> um, because if you think comics are safe, then that means they're uninteresting. Hmm. You know? If your life is more interesting than the life we're creating in comics, then we are failing. Um, so once we had that wind to our back, and then the, the one that was the one that convinced Paul the most was 
was the launch of Teen Titans, the Teen Titans book that Jeff did with McCone, and Outsiders behind that by uh, Judd Winnick and I think it was Tom Rennie. Yeah. Um, those books come out, and all of a sudden, you got to remember, Titans was this massive franchise under Marvin George, and then it just faded and faded, and they relaunched and relaunched and relaunched. And Paul's mindset was just let it sit for a little while, let's not put it out. And I said, no, we got to strike now. We got a book. We got a team that wants to go. Let's do it. He goes, we don't relaunch after after just canceling. You got to let it sit. And I said, no, we got something that's a winner. Just let us do the book that wins. We can make it work. And I, I, I needed number one just as a starting point. Mm-hmm. So he was against the idea, but supported me, which was uh, a lot of that happened, you know? Yeah. Um, which is, that's the way this stuff works, you know? And uh, he let us do it. And it was a monster hit. Monster. We went back for three, four printings. Everything was just cut. And now, all of a sudden, we can go out. He goes, okay, now you can start going out and speaking on it. And that's when we put the DC Nation page in the back. And we start to give a voice to DC Comics, you know, and and get people to know us and all that and interaction. And I wanted that sensibility. I, I love, you know, I've been going to conventions since I was 10 years old, which means I'm going for over 50 years. <laughs> and it is, it's true. And, uh, there's nothing more special than sitting in a panel and feeling like the person up on the stage is talking directly to you, mm. you know? Because um, it brings a connection and a, that is, it's hard to break. It makes a bond, you know? And it's funny because when I was, when I was you know, when, when I was younger, not younger, younger, but younger, um, <laughs> I went to a convention and I, I gave Dan Jurgen shit um, over Booster Gold when he launched Booster Gold. And I was in a panel <laughs> and I asked him questions. I was giving him shit about the Legion rings and everything else. I was I was getting on him. <laughs> I was I was that fan, and uh, <laughs> and Dan was so gracious and so wonderful and such took his time to ask that you know. And years later, when I'm at DC, I, I, I go to Dan and I just relate the relate that, that that story to him. And Dan goes, "I have no recollection," <laughs> and I'm like, "I get it," because I get fans coming up to me all the time reminding me about something I might have said or did and I have no recollection about that because you're in the zone you're out there doing stuff but he was you know what he was so respectful to me that it was so important and, and it was embedded in me that even if he didn't remember I didn't I carried that memory so when I go to conventions I realize how important it is for the people to be there to get that memory to get that personal connection mm-hmm. I don't want to hear what people say you were talking before about the panel the Marvel panel Nothing's worse than a panel where you just have a bunch of guys sitting on the table going, um, we're going on this new book. Uh, it's really exciting. We're going to really change things up. But you can't wait to see it. It's going to be the best thing you see. I'm really excited. Very proud of what I'm doing. Uh, you're going to love it. And that's all I get. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And the, the greatest compliment anybody ever said to me coming out of a convention was, I didn't learn a single thing about your line, but I had the best time in this room listening to you guys talk. Mm, yeah. And that's the win, because all the other stuff just keeps moving. You know, we got to keep on putting books out, so it's going to change the next day. But if they have a good time and they enjoy it and they get a good feeling, then you got to carry that feeling on and, and, and hope they become voices for us to get other people excited about what we're doing, too. Yeah. I know it's been a lot of years now, but I feel like how often do you still get asked what you have against Dick Grayson? Obviously, there is. <laughs> yeah, you know, the funniest part is that I really don't have anything against Dick Grayson. That's the worst part about it. 
which is which is kind of true. I actually liked the character enough. I mean, my my issues with Dick Grayson were couple was story based the first one was I wanted to as everybody knows it's all started because I wanted to kill him in Infinite Crisis not because I had anything against him but because we had a backlog of Robins um, and I also needed a character that death resonated with Superman Batman and Wonder Woman to the point that whatever fractured them apart that kept them apart would reunite them that was the point and there was no greater character than him uh, to do that uh, so that's the reason why you know, and we had a lot of people rallying around uh, Tim Drake at the time, and you know, and we were bringing back Jason Todd. So it was getting very, it was getting very um, congested. But if we wanted a really impactful moment, that was the moment. So you know, and it didn't happen for for a number of reasons, um, which is okay because some of it has to do with nothing with the comics, has to do with whether the characters in media or not in media. So mm-hmm. we had we had to we had to protect them for the moment. Um, I believe Judd Winnick had your back, though, right? He, he was like, yeah, let's kill him. He was, yeah, Judd, 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 out of everybody I've ever worked with, Judd is the guy that would go, yeah, I could do it. So he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll take the heat. I don't care. He was the guy that <laughs> wanted to take, he always wanted to take that extra step. He, he, you know, and honestly, still some of my favorite Batman stories, the ones that Judd wrote. Absolutely love him. Absolutely love him. So full of energy and excitement. Um, and, and honestly, his green hour was freaking awesome, too. Oh, yeah. Um, he, de- he definitely is a fearless... He is a f- that's why he's got me in trouble, but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. so, so I have a question. I know I'm, I'm running a short on, on time with you, but... Uh, no, no, good, good. Listen, listen. We took more time on... 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 Uh, on... Uh, on uh, what you call it? On reboot. So let's, we'll talk comics for a little while too, man. All right. We'll keep us going for a bit, okay? <laughs> so a question that comes up, especially given what you said about ABC and Metal Men, what is it about Metal Men that kind of is this thorough line through your career that you always kind of come back to Metal Men? And it's probably one of the first comics I've ever read. Um, you want to know the, the, the truth is, is that it was the first time comic characters died and came back the next issue, and I, I was shocked as a kid. Mm-hmm. Wait, they're still alive? How's that possible? They, they just got <laughs> killed by a giant flying manta. Um, but um, it's just I just love those characters so much. I, I don't know why. You know why? Because I, I actually like science. So they had real science in there that they used to apply in their stories that, mm-hmm. that I found fun. I, I, the, the human nature of the robot characters, the selflessness of who they are, the personalities. Um, it just, it's just one of those set of characters that was always fun for me. And I just never understood why Magnus was such an ass. <laughs> 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 you, you know what? He's created these incredible beings. You'd think he'd be happy, but no, he's, he's kind of an ass. <laughs> which I think is kind of fascinating too because he's always angry at them which I've never understood <laughs> when, you, when you write the, uh, the Metal Man in Wednesday Comics which is uh, such a fascinating uh, uh, you know, experiment and really cool because of how different people use that medium what was it like to not only re- retrain yourself to you know, just use a, a totally different form of page like I would imagine from a writing standpoint it was a very different challenge it was, but you know what? I wasn't seasoned, so seasoned as a writer, so ingrained in a system. Mm. And anything that I ever did, it was always, anything I ever took on was always wanted to be, there was a challenge aspect of it that I, I wanted to unravel because the one thing about executive editor and then publisher is you got to stay connected to your product, okay? Mm. Once you separate yourself out and you distance yourself what's going on or the process, you lose sight of what it takes and what efforts pe- people are being made to to, 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 to get these books made. Um, so I always like to stay part of the process, always off in a little corner somewhere, 
just so that I'm in the mix so I know what they're going through. I know when there's printer problems or colorist problems or there's production problems or other things. You know, it just it just keeps you in the mix. So I like it. So when Wednesday Comics came about, the odd thing was I was not part of the original lineup. Somebody dropped out at the last minute. They came running to me, asked me if I wanted to do something. I said, I guess I could do it. Um, and uh, and we, we started to come together and the artist they had for me dropped out and I was going to drop out with that artist. And all of a sudden they said, um, we got Garcia Lopez and that was it. I was done. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was it. I, I just desperate to work with Garcia Lopez, who's, who's just was was the master of DC. Um, you know, he is he is he is my seventy. If you persona, I always used to say Garcia Lopez, Garcia Lopez personified the the seventies at DC. Um, Keith Giffen in the eighties, Dan Jurgen in the nineties. Hmm. Um, you know, those guys really set the visual and, and sensibilities of of the line of those times. But Garcia Lopez working with him was a dream. The only, the only sad story I can tell you about that is I was desperate, desperate to buy a page of that art. Desperate. I wanted it more than life itself. But I didn't want to do that in the process of, uh, of working on the book. So when the final page comes in, um, I call up Garcia Lopez and says, uh, Jose, I don't care which one it is, I'll buy any page you have. And he just goes, Dan, they're already all sold. Oh, no. <laughs> I got to work with them, and that's all I know. And I, I actually, at the end of the day, I've got a, I've got a couple of the pieces of Garcia Lopez art in my house. Mm. That's that's the win for me, um, you know. But I, that that was a lot of fun. Um, if anything, the most fun I had is was coming up with a pun for every end of every page for the next issue, which which unfortunately, um, if when you think of that being your greatest accomplishment, it just shows you where your life goes. <laughs> Speaking of original art, I mean, obviously, you, you know, written a lot more comics by now. Um, how much original art of books that you've written do you actually own? You know, it's it's funny. I don't really buy art. I, I've, I've gotten art over the years from things that I've worked on. Um, so I have memorable memory uh, piece of art for, for for the things I've worked on over the years, which are really sweet. That that I. To me, my, my art is like my comic collection. I, I hold books that mean something to me, mm. and I hold art that means something to me. I've got to have that feeling of connection. I just don't, I don't like buying things with the idea, well, this is going to be valuable someday. I like, because I don't see myself ever selling anything that I own, mm. you know? So it's, it's kind of weird. So, um, so I've, got, I've, got, I've got some nice art, I have to admit. Um, Jim gave me a beautiful piece uh, for my 50th birthday, which is probably... Uh, my pride and joy. I've got a uh, a JG Jones cover uh, from the very first uh, comic I ever wrote, co-wrote with Jimmy Pamiati from Superboy, oh, wow. uh, which is just beautiful. And I've got a piece. Of, I've got a couple of pieces of Phil Jimenez art. I'm thinking about the ones that are hanging up on the wall. Um, I got a piece of Phil Jimenez art, which was the sample art he did to help me sell Infinite Crisis to Paul to get him to agree to to greenlight the project. And it's this beautiful piece, just stunning. Um, and it's interesting too because in the piece too, you'll see in it. Um, there was a section there was for Amazon's attack, which was originally part of the Infinite, uh, Infinite Crisis story, mm. but we had to pull it the last minute, and so it, it's reflected on there as part of it, but it never actually turned up in the actual story. So mm. that was that was fun. And then I got uh, another special piece, which is something that was given to me as a as a gift from uh, 
from Michael Turner, uh, Supergirl piece. Oh, wow. Um, which was, yeah, that was really sweet. We have a wonderful story with Michael Turner about Supergirl. Um, you know, when Michael finally agreed to come over and work with DC, you know, I was trying to find the right project. And um, the concept was that we can bring back Kara Zell-El, Supergirl. And this was a major moment, major moment in DC, because this was the first real unraveling of Crisis on Infinite Earth, the real big hit. And I went in and I did this pitch like nobody's business um, <laughs> to get this thing made, agreed to it. And, and it took, took a couple of weeks, a lot of talking through it, a lot of people discussing, other people supporting me. And uh, Paul finally agrees to bring back Kara Zor-El. So I'm like, this is wonderful, I got it. And now I got this perfect book from Mike, Michael Turner at, at DC Comics. So I go to Michael Turner, <laughs> who is not a comic book fan, was not a comic book fan at the time. Uh, or really, I've just never read comics. And I go, I got Kara Zor-El, we can bring back Supergirl from Christ of the Earth. And he looks at me, he goes, why would I want to do that? That's just a watered-down version of Superman. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and I was crushed. I was crushed. And, uh, and Jeff Loeb came in, pulled him aside, explained to him how important this was to his good career move and all these other things. And, and, and Michael comes around, okay, we can work it out. And, and we did it, and it was this, this monster hit for us. Boy, I was like, holy, I guess I should have done my homework before before going, before going down that road. But there we were, we got it. <laughs> So a, a, a general question, because I mean, obviously at times, you know, people don't really realize a lot of what, what kind of goes on in DC or what's really kind of going under the hood. So uh, a question that came up when I kind of mentioned uh, to, to some people that I was going to be talking to you is that they had a kind of a question about how comprehensive is DC's film library of old comics? Because obviously it has a very expansive history. They're just curious, like, what is that look like? Like, where is... Where is all the old old work? All the old originals or the old comics? Like, what's that library look like? The actual the physical comics. There is a very comprehensive physical comic collection at DC. Uh, it was in our library in New York. It made its move to California. I'm not sure where it is right now. Um, and there was a, li- a librarian uh, that basically was responsible for searching out and finding uh, cost effective books to fill in the missing gaps they didn't have but they didn't have a complete collection it's pretty close but they didn't have a complete collection so they were constantly going out there making acquisitions to fill that collection because at the end of the day our goal was to have a full collection hmm. the other side of the coin is that what we did is we had a program where we digitized every one of our comics so we would have it we would get rid of the film make sure that we had uh, digital copies and if we didn't have film we scanned it cleaned up the copies and used it expensive process but allowed us now in today's age to have um, clean, strong files that we could have used for all these collected editions that went on or mm-hmm. for, uh, for the digital copies that were being sold later. But, but it was very important to protect and preserve that history. And it wasn't just about the comics themselves, but the DC Comics Library also had a lot of the memorabilia and, and items that were of a time, you know, like the edge slicks and different things like that, just to show the character's effect over the decades hmm. uh, that existed about how they were seen and used in the, in the mass media. It was, it was always a special moment to go into there and, and go through it, and they did have an action comics number one. Oh, wow. It was cut up into pieces. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it was. It was a bad copy, so what they did is they cut it up and they laminated each page individually. So you can see the entire issue, but each page was laminated separately. So it was this big pile of laminated pages of comics, but it was actually the one. Wow. 
That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So a question that kind of comes out of that is that obviously comics are such a, you know, periodical business, but also you have this, you know, extensive back library and people, you know, there are certain segments of that uh, fan base that desperately want to see older books collected, whether it be Silver Age, Golden Age, whatever, what have you. What, were your, what are your kind of general feelings on the focus that both Marvel and DC have on those types of collections, while at the same time, obviously trying to promote the new stuff and create new content? There was a point that was two separate markets. I mean, it, it goes, it, 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 that's an interesting question because it goes back to actually my, actually my first month at DC. Um, I was at a one, I, I tell the story about it. I was at WonderCon um, 2002. It was still in Oakland. It didn't shift to San Francisco yet. Um, and uh, in the convention, I went to a panel at DC. This goes back to the panel things also, by the way. Okay. I went to a panel. It was six of DC's best writers on a panel. A moderator that was, you know, seemed barely interested in the conversation or actually spoke, um, spoke very much about everything but the people sitting there. Um, <laughs> and uh, in the room that could have held 400 people, there was maybe 50 to 60. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is weird. You know, I'm like, I thought this would be, the, this, this was the premier panel. Why isn't this more exciting? And uh, then the questions started coming from the panel, from the people in the audience. And everybody raised their hands going, um, you know, when are you going to collect this? Just like you're asking, when are you going to collect this book? When are you going to collect this book? <laughs> and then the question that, that put the dagger in my heart, which was, one guy goes, when are you going to collect all the all-star comics before I die? And I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, everyone in this room is going to die and we have nobody reading our books. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, wow, we got to get young, we got to get fast, we got to different, we got to bring different people in, we got to stop talking about the past and start concentrating on the future. You know, make today's books interesting instead of worrying about yesterday's books. That doesn't mean you, you, you forego them, but you've got you to strengthen your main line first before you can really focus on your past stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're using your past as a crutch, then, then you have a very weak foundation to build, build a line on. So we, uh, we ultimately focused on the periodicals, then when the periodicals were working, then we started to be able to create a more, as they use the expression, robust collection service. Mm-hmm. And it would be wonderful to be able to collect every single issue, which was ultimately the goal, I think, at one point. But the truth be told is that the sales weren't there for some titles um, that obviously deserved to be sold, collected, but we didn't. I mean, you know, for the years, they re- they wouldn't collect sugar and spike number one, you know, the early sugar and spikes, even though they consider it some of their best work at DC um, for what it was and the storytelling and all that. But nobody, nobody cared. But we ultimately collected that, mm-hmm. and you know, the, that's why you change so many formats. Uh, that's why you you uprice these books. You get these these hardcovers at a high price because ultimately you're going to sell less copies. So the only way it can be profitable is by raising the price. Um, knowing that you've got a hard, hardcore fan that's going to bite in, buy into that to a point that um, the book is at least very break-even, but hopefully a little profitable, too. Mm-hmm. You know, But uh, unfortunately, collected editions business is a dollars and cents business, and you only collect the things that um, make money. And even myself, there's a couple of series that I worked on that I never collected because I saw the sales on the individual series, and I said, I don't think we can justify uh, making a collection of it. Um, and, you know, those are decisions you've got to make, but, you know, you got to lead by example. For sure. Uh, that's what we did. It's a weird industry too, right? Because you have, you know, the people who are like, well, I'll just wait for the trade. But if you're not supporting the book, you may not get one. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and that's the, the truth. That's the, that's the unspoken truth is that without the sales to support the book, 
The people that say they're waiting for the trains, they do not come out in droves. We had a couple that flipped that upside down. A um, couple of Vertigo series were able to break that trend. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the aggregate, um, the, the book that sold better as a trade than a periodical was the exception, not the rule, especially mm-hmm. in the periodical game, you know, the superhero game. Yeah. During your tenure, is there a specific project that you can think of that, I mean, and there might be a, a number of them, but that you really loved, really were behind, and just for whatever reason, it just failed to click, and you're like, why couldn't this be the one? Like, wh- this this had all the ingredients, why didn't it work? Yeah, you know what, I mean, there's plenty of them. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. can, I, can, I can, you know, I could probably describe more of the ones that I wish worked more than the ones that did work, you know? Um, because what I like to do is I like to take a lot of risks. You know, and I also wanted to break free of just four or five characters driving the entire line. You know, it's not healthy. Um, you know, you're constantly trying to find ways to expand the line, drive the line. And even when you do crossover stories, the goal of a crossover story is to find ways to drive attention to a series that people might not discover on their own. But when they do find it, they stay with it. You know, that's the, one of the biggest purposes behind crossovers, not just for that initial sales spike you might get mm-hmm. for when... Um, the series runs and then everybody forgets about it. You want something that has lasting effect on the line or else you're going to get yourself in a grind where you're constantly doing event after event after event just to keep this artificial spike going, which which unfortunately you do get into that trend and we got caught in that ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's one of those things because ultimately the problem in a periodical business is you can have the massive success that you had um, and you still got to put out another book in the following month. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, and then month after that, and you're like, and then people are looking at you, go, "Well, why is this one sellers than what you did beforehand?" And there's nothing better trying to explain the alchemy of why a comic sells to people who don't even read comics, mm. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that's always interesting. Uh, well, as you said, it's a, it's a crazy marathon, right? Like, and that just that never ends. Just never ends. It's not even a marathon. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's you're running a marathon as a sprint. <laughs> <laughs> And you want to stop and catch your breath and just say, hey, can we just do this for a second? But you got to keep going, you know? And mm-hmm. the, the good part is that we had enough competitive juices in ourselves to constantly try to push it and overachieve, you know? And uh, that was it. You mentioned earlier, I mean, the, you know, the kind of the, the selling people and making, you know, Infinite Crisis a thing. And I remember just from a fan perspective that that period just felt so rife with possibilities because it felt like everything mattered. Everything felt like it was leading towards something. There was this alchemy in the air that every kind of book felt like you were getting another piece of this jigsaw puzzle. And it was just exciting. And you wanted to be, you wanted to be there for that. And you had the, you know, the, the countdown to Infinite Crisis. And again, that felt like an experiment that really worked and it brought me my attention to books that again I was maybe a newer DC reader at that point because again I'd just been a Marvel fan for so long and suddenly I was like oh my god these DC characters are really interesting and you had books like Villains United uh, you know the OMAC project and you're really shining lights in different areas and building up to this big event and so I've always kind of looked back at that period of DC as being this explosion of exciting content and it all felt like it was working together to build to something exciting and I've always been very appreciative of that as a fan Oh, listen, that was, that's probably my favorite period of time. And, you know, the reality is, you know, those first five years were kind of magical in a weird way for me. It was everything that I was doing found a way to work, you know. And, again, like I said, the problem is once you do it all and you bring yourself to a conclusion, you got to keep going. So you got to constantly reinvent that wheel. But 
that moment from Countdown Day for the Crisis to the end of the 52 weekly series is probably my favorite creative period of time of my time, tenure at DC. Um, and you know, we what I used to do every every year was I'd write out a blueprint. I'd sit with every writer, all the writers, and sit down with the artists, and sit down with the editors, and we'd talk and talk and talk endlessly about stories. Then I'd take everything that everybody said, and I'd put a, build a blueprint uh, for the year of what the story was going to be, and what the big plan was going to be. And then I would run it past people, we'd agree, we'd make a, changes along the way, and then we'd come to it, it's an editorial stamp, this is what the direction for the DCU is. I'd put it in front of Paul, he either steps it, approves it, changes it, whatever he does, but we would do that. And I did that for the for every year, uh, probably up to 2008, 2009. Um, wow. Um, and you, you should see the documents. And you can see, see the documents, and it's like, you see what we wanted to do and what it ultimately became. Um, and as we got further down the road in those later years, we were drifting further from the original plan because everybody started to pull in different directions. And the problem is that when you, when you run that close together and, and that's a sync with everything running, um, it takes a, a disproportionate amount of effort to keep everybody on track and everybody has to buy into the program. And when the program starts to come apart or people push against it, you're trying to replace it's like replacing the wheels of a t- replacing the wheels of a moving car. You know, you got to fly. You, gotta, you can't stop the car. You got to change the tire while we're still moving. So, you know, unfortunately, you don't you don't wind up putting it on as as, as good as it should be. Um, but that's the challenges of the business. But we were running full gas, and and we we kind of you know not that we fried out the studio, but we we pushed everybody pretty hard. So then when we took the foot off the gas, sort of everything sort of faded and started to head in their own directions, and. It was, it, we, were, we just couldn't bring it back together again because everybody sort of went off their own way and pulling it back together was, was difficult. I mean, if you look at the Marvel universes, um, because one, one of the first things I did at DC one, during that time as I was learning comics is I dissected the, the first five years of the Marvel universe to see how they built their universe. And what we don't realize is there's not a lot of books, <laughs> you know? <laughs> there's only about 15 books going on at that time or 14 books going on at that time. So managing and cross-promoting and cross-pollinating and, and coordinating 14 books, a lot easier than 40, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and, then, and then what happens is if your numbers start to slip, if you can't get the numbers up, you add more books. So all of a sudden, you get this urban sprawl of, <laughs> uh, of comics, and uh, you're winding up putting a lot of material. I mean, at one of our peaks, I don't want to say it's, 2007, 2008, um, we put out 1,100 periodicals in one year. Oh my God. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's almost 100 a month. Um, you know, and the good thing is nobody noticed it. The, the only thing is we know it. <laughs> and, and the funny part is when everything was working at its best, we were putting under 700. Okay? Wow. And within two years' time, with two years' time, we went from 700 books or six six something up to 1,100 because the extra books made up for the drop in sales post Infinite Crisis in 52. Wow. 50, 52 as a, as a series, you gotta remember, averaged 90,000 sales and that's on a week. So that's having four number one books almost in the same month, you know what I mean? So it's kind of crazy. 
you, you talked before about the idea that you you like to to take risks, and that's something I always appreciated you as again as this kind of you know frontman of DC. Is it always felt that you weren't afraid to try new things? Like fifty two on the face of it sounds insane. Like you're going to manage a weekly book, it's going to have a you know a tight connected story, and you're never going to miss a shipping deadline, and it's just going to work. And it did. And I I'm still flabbergasted that it exists, and it was as as wonderful as it was. Oh, listen, it's, it's, it's a credit to the writers uh, and the talent artists and everybody on board. Um, those guys really ran with it because the original conceit of the 52-weekly series was to fill in the missing year from the one-year-later jump. But they weren't able to coagulate the story together uh, in a way that was dramatically interesting and, and paced properly. You know, So they ha- ultimately what they had to do was create out of cloth every week new story uh, for the series. And... And 52 was built on on a, an animation production schedule, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that was my animation schedule. I was using storyboard artists and a writer's room and things like that in order to create the series because that was the only way it was going to get done. So we put the writers together as a writing room, and then we, we had Keith given us basically a board artist, and he was handing out pages to whatever artist was available in order to get them complete. And and Keith probably said it best. He said, probably one of the greatest attractions of 52 is just waiting for the car to crash into the wall. He goes, this is like NASCAR. <laughs> the people are here to see it crash. And I'm like, wow, okay, well, we're not going to do that, are we? And, uh, and we didn't. And there was a lot of pressure and a lot of fighting and a lot of craziness. But at the end of the day, the product speaks for itself. And that's all that really matters, you know? Absolutely. And then, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I, again, I think we actually are at the, you know, almost at the uh, the end of our time together today. But um, obviously the new 52 always will forever loom large. But I do always point it to it as something that was, again, taking a big swing, trying something different. And I remember at the time I was working for, uh, just doing some freelance for a magazine. And I was kind of like, it's okay to love it. It's okay to like it. If It's okay not to like it either. It's not necessarily for you. It's for this new audience, for someone who's going to, you know, this is their book. This is their entry point to DC, they clear out you know, everything that kind of came before and just have something new that they can enjoy. And so maybe that's not yeah. you, but that's okay because you know we need new readers, we need new people to jump in and enjoy this stuff. So I always appreciated that. I was not one of those cantankerous people kind of complaining all the time. I was like, you know, there's an audience that this is for, and this is great. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. We had, we had a lot of success with Blackest Night, um, and, and what happened was Brightest Day came out and was going to sort of reset the DC universe, but sort of resetting it back to square one in a weird way, um, which is not the worst thing, but it, it wasn't landing with the same resonance that we had hoped it was going to happen. Mm. And a lot of the line was getting soft, but the entire industry was getting soft at that moment in time, and we knew we had to do something dramatic. Um, over the years of DC, the my holy grail was DC's Ultimates line. You know, mm-hmm. I was watching Marvel and Ultimates, and I was jealous. I have to admit, um, at least for the early books. You know, Bendis on on Spider Man um, was pretty amazing, and he found a way to do something that was not just creatively strong, but also a sales success too. And there was a freshness to what they were doing, and, the, and Marvel played in that Ultimates world for a while, and I tried it a couple of times. Um, I had an Ultimates line idea that got shot down at the start, um, too expansive. Um, then we tried the, um, the All-Star line, which was basically sort of Ultimates in, with, a different, with a different coat of paint, um, and we ran into production problems on that, so that sort of 
stopped, started, and, and you know, unfortunately didn't didn't hit with the, the way they did. Started really strong and then sort of faded. Um, then we did the Earth One books again, fresh start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme. You see a pattern developing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and because of the way the books come out, just the amount of time between them, they, they don't have that resonance. And at that point, too, you know, people had started to see multiple interpretations of our characters, so it started to not matter. And then I realized at the end of the day, it's the main line, going back to the main line, the main line is the one that's got to work, the main line is the one that's got to be successful, the main line is our bread and butter. Mm. So we're going to reinvent anything, we've got to reinvent the main line, um, especially when the industry is failing, and Jim and I had just taken over as publishers at the time, and I remember talking with Jim going, you know, I don't want to be the guy that just became publisher and then watched the, everything go to shit, you know, and, <laughs> you know, because I'm not going to be the guy shutting down the lights here. So, uh, so we went for the roll of the dice, and the plans for for plans for um, New Fifty Two were actually bigger than uh, than we when we than we originally thought we were going to be. To be honest with you, people were really skeptical, um, and uh, we took a lot of crazy swings. And but then again, we gave a lot of creative control to the talent, and uh, and that's why it felt disjointed because everybody wanted to see something unified. But the reality is. We couldn't start every series with an origin story. We couldn't start certain things with certain books we needed up and running, mm. which did not align with characters being introduced for the first time. Mm. So we made some decisions that might have weakened the overall conceit of what New 52 was, but I believe allowed for stronger books coming out of the gate. You know, um, And the goal was to reintroduce everybody at the start with all these franchises. DC, you know, for a long time, never had a really tight continuity, you know, the, the Batman and Batman comics and the Batman and World's Finest were two different characters, the Batman and Graven mm-hmm. Bolt, another different character. So, you know, there was never that tight continuity. So we were using that logic a little bit to justify some of the decisions we were making. Um, but at the end of the day, it launched a huge, every book, every all 52 titles went back to second printings. I'd say the first six months, books were never hotter. Um, the first year was one of our best years ever. Uh, at DC, the second year was extraordinarily strong. Um, but once we started making changes and introducing new characters, and you know, some arrogance of the fact that we can't fail, that we're going to be able to push it, and we can make changes and do what we want, um, came back came back to haunt us a little bit. And you know, it, it probably had its strength for about four years, four and a half, if you want to push it the furthest. Mm-hmm. And Believe it or not, a reboot, a rebirth was always in the plans. That was the rebirth is made. And then I remember my conversation with Jeff. It's like you know we we made our bones on Green Lantern rebirth. How about we rebirth the entire line? And that's sort of how I came to be. So. Mm. One thing that I was always impressed by the New Fifty Two was how you guys did try different genres and brought back like book types of books that really hadn't been published by, you know, kind of the big two in, in quite a long time. And so I really appreciated trying something different that wasn't just your standard superhero fair and really doing something different uh, with the opportunity with all these books, re- you know, launching, want to do something a little bit different. Now, that was, that was my goal. I've, listen, you know, if you get a metal meant to see, it's the greatest feeling in the world. Um, <laughs> And your goal is to make all the other books succeed and make sure that Batman doesn't fail. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of of your position, you know? Um, That's sort of the yin and yang of of, of DC Comics. And uh, and when I was reading DC, when I first started reading DC Comics in the 70s, 
I came in on the mystery and horror books, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Swamp Thing and House of Mysteries, House of Secrets and all that. And in the 70s, only 40%, this is true, only 40% of DC Comics line in the 70s was superheroes. 60% was other stuff. Wow. War, westerns, romance, mystery, horror, everything else. 40% these superheroes. You look back. Look back. And uh, for me, DC, the thing that set DC apart from Marvel was the different genres. You know, that's what made DC more interesting to me because they had different types of books and I just didn't have to go and get superhero and superhero fix. Because even when Marvel was doing horror comics, they were superhero comics with horror characters. So for me, I loved all these other genres. I love the anthologies. I love all these bits and pieces, all these crazy, crazy corners in the DC universe. And I wanted to bring that spotlight back to them with the hope of broadening our audience by offering different flavors of product so that if you're not a superhero fan, but a comic fan, we'll be able to create something for you. Hmm. And as the story goes, you know, DC had a lot of profitable mystery and, and war and Western comics and that in the in, in, in romance comics in the 80s. But they had, a, they had to cancel profitable books because when the direct market took over for the newsstand, the direct market was only looking for superhero product. Mm. So they had to let go a lot of these more interesting, diverse style storytelling just to focus primarily on superheroes, the, the genre that worked best in the direct market, because it's a much more focused market, which a much clearer sensibility of what they wanted to buy. Hmm. So this was our way to expand and see if we can go outreach. At this point now, the, the book programs are stronger. Like you said, the trade program is stronger. So the goal was to create trades of the other genres with the hope that people would find the other genres, hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, it, for the most part, it probably didn't work, probably because we've already, you know, narrow cast our audience so much for expectations. But if you don't take those risks, you'll never know. And the best part about comic book storytelling is it's low cost R and D in the world of, uh, in the world of, uh, you know, IP creation. So we were able to take a lot of risks. And the good part is a lot of the new material was subsidizing a lot of the books that weren't as strong. But you have books. You have that Swamp Thing and Animals Man series by, by Scott and uh, and Jeff Lemire, man. Whew, that was awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Say, you know, but then you get you get Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, just to be ridiculous. You know, and, <laughs> and I Vampire and all these things and, and the Resurrection Man. Think about it. We're launching with Resurrection Man, you know, and uh, or Voodoo or something like that. And that's fun. <laughs> you, and you just sit back going, come on, baby. You want to see one of them take. You want to see one of them land. You know, come on. <laughs> I, I, I love those Batman numbers. Don't get me wrong, but God, one of those guys on the bottom. Well, come on, show me you can do it. You know. <laughs> so, a question about you as a writer. So, in the last you know twenty years working at sporadic things at, at, at DC, what is it that kind of always kept you kind of working on um, you know kind of the, the weirder books or the books that weren't you know the, the you know the, the bigger titles? Like you did a lot of more interesting projects, as you said, like Metal Men, um, you know, Sideways, etc. Like, what was it that kind of led you to those types of books as opposed to something that might be quote unquote, you know, uh, more bankable or, you know, a bigger title. Yeah, that's, that's, those are the guys that have the full-time jobs as the writers in the audience, <laughs> you know? Uh, then, you know, the, it, first of all, I, I, I wouldn't even know how to write a Batman or Superman series even if you put it in front of me. Um, <laughs> um, because I, I'm so ingrained in what he was, those characters are and were that it's hard for me to foresee going forward. I, let these, I love these guys going and jumping on that, but you know, I know what I'd like to do with these characters. It's fun to see other people take it and run with it. Um, the, 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 the weird little books that I work on are the ones that, you know, 
I, I'd like to say nobody else wants. That's not 100 percent true, but it's, it's the ones that I, I really enjoy. I mean, I, I loved working on Omac, uh, Phantom Stranger, uh, Metal Men, Sideways. I, I, I really enjoyed my time uh, on those books. The only my only problem is that my job was so oppressive, just in the day to day grind that. I, I never felt like I was able to give my full to them, and I always try to bring other people in to help me through just to get through the time on it. Mm. Um, I never got a chance to really just in, enjoy being the writer of it. I, I was always more the guy like, oh, I'm going to be the detriment because I'm going to slow you down. But but I, I love the characters and stories. I had the second second year of OMAC figured out in advance. Um, I knew what it was going to be, and you know, sideways. Um, you know, we didn't get a chance. Metal Man, Metal Man, I. I was disappointed because one of the things I wanted to do was um, I had a storyline playing that was supposed to be tied um, to the, the Death Metal series um, in the in the Dark Multiverse, and I wanted to do a special with Metal Men in that. And then when we didn't do the special, I sort of squeezed that story in at the end just to get it over with, and mm. felt like I rushed the end of that one. So that's it. But my, my problem is I'm probably my worst critic. So I like to I like to go in places where hopefully nobody notices me and I could just get a chance to just a chance to write a little bit <laughs> on the side. <laughs> a, a project I, I enjoy I enjoy it a lot, but but I am but I am my, I am my worst critic. That's for sure. A project I'm just curious about what was it like kind of creating it and, and how maybe involved you were in, in greenlighting it would have been uh, the Commandy Challenge, which is such a, a, you know, kind of a crazy concept that you guys made work. Um, what what kind of led to that? Because, like, what was the discussion in the room? You know, it's an interesting thing because there's so many... Commandy is one of those characters that everybody wanted to write. And we knew that doing a series, it, had, it was going to have a, a limited shelf life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that was really a Kirby creation, and I think honestly, he's the only one that could do that project justice because just just for the sheer insanity of it all. And I think that's what I think what Kirby brought to the thing, brought that series to life, and it's hard to imitate that. Mm-hmm. Easy to love it, but hard to imitate it. Uh, but a lot of people wanted to do that book, and a lot of people wanted to be on board on that thing. And over the years, I had received several pitches from some of the top talent in the business about Commandy, and oddly. They're, they're all just variations of each other, so you, you weren't really choosing for the best direction. You were going to choose based on talent. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want to make that choice because I didn't feel any of them had that something so dramatically different or something so new or so innovative that was going to push it over the top. All, each one of them had one thing in common, a love for the original material. Mm. Um, so the thought was, and I remember the old DC challenge in the 80s, which, again, not, not a great thing, but just audacious in its own right and something that's so DC you know nobody else did it (laughs) and it's just so DC and I thought you know what we own that concept that idea of the challenge of teams and we have we own command I said if we marry these two which is like just like a fever dream in a weird way um, we could do something fun and it gives everybody a chance to touch the character it gives everybody a chance to write the character and have some fun with it. Get it out of your system. I said, get it out of your system. Do that one issue. Get it all out of your system. And then screw the writer that follows. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a blast. I think Bill Willingham took it to the extreme. I think he had Commandy dissected at the end of his issue. I'm like, what are you doing, Bill? But that was the game. There were no rules. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Um, actually, I, I'm going to go back to reboot. I know this is you know an hour ago at this point, but um, a question that did crop up in my in my mind: um, the idea of kind of doing different things and trying different things. When you wrote Firewall, um, was it right from the get go? You guys were like, we got to do a new opening sequence for this, and it's going to be in a bomb. No, that was that was that was that was all. That's the studio. These guys. <laughs> okay. You know, I was becoming get moving into uh, you know executive position and mainframe, and then I was also writing. I can tell you how many fights was over that episode, which which I can't even begin to explain. It's just it's 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 a myth and a legend that we even even no matter how crazy I make it sound, it's going to be it's actually in reality probably twenty times worse than whatever I say. <laughs> but it was a late episode. It was it was it was it was over budget. It was everything was wrong going for it, and they loved it, and that's why this, that's why mainframe was so special. Everything was broken. It was, it was late. It was over budget. It was everything was broken, and they wanted to make it so much of a bond rift. They wound up redoing the opening, and delayed it more, and made it more expensive. They put more money into it. <laughs> honestly, it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference on how it broadcast, but. They were so passionate about their this show and so much in love with the show, and more importantly, in love with the show that they always wanted to do. Mm. Uh, that, they made, that they made that, and I remember seeing that for the first time. And I can't tell you when I see that open, I get goosebumps still. And when my name pops up, I said, "Fuck, I'm in the, I'm attached to this thing," and that's awesome, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> just like that, you know. It's like because it's just so out of control. Brilliant, and uh, it was that, and then the uh, the modern major general song at the end. Yes. To wrap up the entire season, <laughs> I, I, that again, that was you were doing that. That was an entire episode. That was supposed to be an entire episode, and they condensed it into the song. <laughs> oh really? Oh wow. Yeah, it was supposed to be an entire recap show, and they said, "Listen, we can't do the middle time to do the recap." So. The, the writer Ken Pontek wrote the song as a recap and they animated the entire scene and we didn't know how they were going to do it and they did it as a play which was brilliant with all the binomes because binomes were easier to animate so you can go quicker with them you know <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because I've I, you know to this day like I I, I know way too much of that song by heart. I was maybe 14 years old, I think, when it came out. I loved it. I was so taken by it. I didn't know, obviously, the, the riff you guys were doing there, but I, yeah, I, I absolutely love that episode and that that whole recap is kind of bonkers when you think about it. It's like, who does that? Who does you know this big season-long arc of like 16 episodes and then at the very end has a, a musical recap of what you just watched? I know. It, it's insane. It's, but I mean, but that was... At that point, it just didn't, nothing mattered. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, we're going to get this thing made, it's going to be brilliant, and we don't, I mean, honestly, nobody cared. They were doing that for themselves. Don't kid yourself any other way, you know? <laughs> Another thing about that season, again, talking about the openings, is that, again, you guys had not just the firewall opening, but each kind of subsection of episodes had an, their own opening as well with, you know, using different footage from the episodes we we're about to see, uh, different voiceover. Again, like, you know, that is n- more effort as being going into developing that as opposed to just using your standard opening. Was that ever, you know, kind of a discussion of should we be doing this or was that always a absolutely we got to set the tone? It was it was it, it was being driven from above from the from the top of the company and everybody just cleared the path 
And like I said, you know, Beast Wars and everything else kept the lights on. Uh, this was where this is where the heart and soul of the company was. This this is why people worked. Reboot was why people came to mainframe to to be animators. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? So it was this it was this mecca because um, they they all felt like they were you know they knew they were doing something special at that time. For sure. Know? I gotta say, uh, as an aside, as a Canadian fan, for years I was like, "Why do they keep saying Beast Wars? It's Beasties, right?" Like, because in the Canadian audience, that's how we were introduced to it by as. Yeah, yeah, we, we had Beast Wars and and War Planets, and you had Beasties and Shadow Raiders. Go figure, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we weren't allowed to use War in the title of a cartoon. That's why. <laughs> what I, it's 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 bonkers to think of that. Like we've come so far in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, and we have it. <laughs> uh, before, before I let you go, um, you mentioned All Star as kind of being this one of the attempts at kind of doing an, an ultimate version of DC. Obviously, you know, yeah. the, the two completed books, or not completed, but the two books that we saw have publication, you have All Star Superman, which seems like, you know, it always gets held up as this evergreen, amazing book. Everyone kind of loves it. And then you have All Star Batman, which unfortunately never really ended. Was that a difficult thing to never have that kind of reach its completion for you? Um, yeah. I mean, All-Star Superman is probably, during my tenure, probably the best Superman story told during my tenure at DC Comics, without a doubt. It's gorgeous. And, and it was, and, part, and by the way, part of this was about, going back to the Earth One and all that, part of it was about, and now that you said it, it reminded me of the conversation. The conversation was, if somebody was brand new to DC reading, what book would you pull off the shelf for these characters, right? Mm. And uh, it was interesting because we we struggled. What was the, you know, Superman for All Seasons? Maybe mm. um, John Burns Year One, Man of Steel, maybe. But Superman for all the years of product, what was the book that best encapsulated Superman? And that was the goal for All-Star Superman, was to be the comic or the book that was your go-to book to understand who Superman was as a character. And mm. I think I think Grant and, and Frank Wiley created a brilliant series that feels so true to the past, but doesn't use it at all. If you notice that, these are all brand new characters in there. They all feel like there was something from the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, but in fact, the matter is it was all brand new. So it was this brand new idea capturing the, the essence of everything that Superman was. So that's why that book worked so well. And that was gonna be the plan for Batman, because the Batman go-to book actually is Dark Knight, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, that's the book everybody wants to learn, read Batman, and they see Dark Knight or Batman Year One, so it was there, so it makes sense for Frank and Jim to be the guys to finish that, so it, it's an incomplete book, but there's some crazy good stuff in there, man, and in Frank's mind, if I'm not mistaken, that Batman was the early Batman that ultimately becomes the Dark Knight Batman. Mm-hmm. He, he saw his timeline. He, he saw his timeline. He knew his timeline. Of, of the character and how he evolved and that version of Batman was the one that becomes the Dark Knight Batman mm-hmm. so for me I always it's not that it's incomplete I just we saw we read the ending and we're missing some in the middle <laughs> <laughs> good point uh, with uh, with All Star Superman I mean, we talk about obviously this this timeless nature of it and how it really taps into who Superman is and uh, I think the, the moment that so many people go back to and really enjoy is um, the moment when uh, he comforts that girl who's thinking of harming herself um, and just yeah. it just just talks to her and there's just something so comforting about how he write, how Grant writes that moment and like that's if I was going to show anyone 
just one panel or one moment of Superman. I feel like that would be it because that feels like it encapsulates that that warmth that he has. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we always my story always to be Superman, Batman walk into a bar, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Superman, Batman walk into a bar. Everybody sees everybody who sees Batman runs out the door and afraid that they, they did something wrong and they're going to be arrested or beaten. Um, everybody else tries to buy Superman a drink. Superman is the most powerful character on earth. Can destroy the entire place with the, just a stomp of a foot, and he's the guy they feel most comfortable around. And I think that's interesting about those two characters uh, that sets them apart from anybody else. You know, for sure. And I think that that's one of the things I love. So the scene that you described encapsulated those people buying Superman a drink at the bar. You know, yeah. the the fact that he that he's this alien that should have no connection to humanity, but has the greatest sense understands humanity the best. He's been on the outside looking it in and knows how to define it and help people with it. You know? Sure. So, oh, my, my, I guess my parting question for you is: we're um, recently you've been working with the Cupert School. Um, you know, what was that? How did that kind of uh, come about? And do you plan on you know kind of getting more involved with the Cupert School, or what are your kind of goals with that? Uh, you know, yeah, um, I was bored. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> no. You know, you know. Actually, no. It's like I. I love the people at the Cooper School. Anthony Marquez, who bought the school from the Cooper family, uh, was actually um, an assistant editor at DC, so we knew him well. He was also a retailer for a while, and and with the Cooper still involved, and um, that place always holds a special place for me. It's like you know, from the days I used to see it in the comics to the time I I did an interview with Joe Cooper at the Cooper School when I was doing some uh, article reporting for some fanzines. Um, so I've always had this strange connection to the people and Andy became one of my closest friends along the way and so I wanted to do something but I didn't you have writers and artists teaching and that's not what I want to do because the one thing I see from most people is their lack of business sense mm. what they're actually getting themselves into but wanting to be comics and it's one thing to love a business or love a hobby or love things you want to participate in it's another thing to turn it into a vocation a profession and if you really want to be in this as a professional then you have to learn how professionals operate before stepping in, and one of that's my goal is to help them understand how they need to present themselves, what they need to present, how they need their projects to be prepared in order to have it reviewed in a way that's going to give them a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important because you know I've read so many pitches over my lifetime, and I might have unknowingly rejected some of the most brilliant things possible because it just wasn't presented or organized properly. You know, mm-hmm. um, which would be a shame. And, you want to give everybody a chance, and with so many people out there, and so competitive, um, you know, you you want to give some people a leg up or help them any way you can. And I, I love I love helping, and I love hearing that enthusiasm. Um, and I and I wish there was something like that available when I tried to break in because I spent years not knowing what to do. And I look back at some of my pitches that I sent out in my early days, and I'm I'm a little embarrassed by it because I'm like, wow. <laughs> not surprised people turned this down because now I know what I did wrong you know but I had to learn it from the inside not from the outside so I'm trying to help the guys on the outside uh, you know a little bit of the secret sauce so to speak doesn't guarantee anything but if it helps make them a little bit better writer and helps them organize their thoughts better about what their projects are about so mm-hmm. much that's, that's a win in its own sense when uh, obviously, like last year was a, you know a year of transition for you, but one thing that was interesting following along is on Facebook, etc. When you were kind of rediscovering your comic collection uh, and kind of <laughs> posting thoughts of you know a lot of interesting oddities along the way, it was really interesting. Kind yeah. of getting your commentary and just seeing some of the interesting things you had. Oh, I have I have a very strange collection um, because it's it's as of right now it's a 
I, I, I brought it down in size. Actually, when I moved, I actually gave up 26 long boxes of comics. 26 long Oof. Yeah, and I still have, I still have, what we're doing, 55, 60. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll give you a closing story. So here's the funny part. So I went through all my stuff, and I had to make that hard choice about bringing my collection down and all these things about books I'm going to keep and whatnot. And I really keep the books that I remember more so than I just have. Mm-hmm. If you're a collector, you know what I mean. Um, and so ultimately, but I also have another problem. Um, I had a lot of stuff in my office. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they got they, I had to get, they had to clear out my office, which was basically the equivalent of three offices worth of stuff. Um, oh they filled they up a U-Haul full of collected uh, books, um, books, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, collected editions, omnibuses, books, um, comics, statues, Anything that I had from, you know, over the 18 years that I've, I've you know, could be hold away in the office that I didn't bring home. So, took all that stuff, combined it with the books that I was getting rid of here. I put a big factory. I called up one of the retailers that I know is a good friend. I said, come over here. Take everything away. I need you to take it all away. But in return, I want the least amount of comics back. <laughs> 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 so, that, that was the deal. You're going to take all this stuff. So he literally filled the U-Haul to the top. And for that, I got four comics. (laughs) 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 Which I I still to this day call my magic beans. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Can you you say which ones they were? Yes. They are Amazing Spider-Man number one. Five, six, and seven. <laughs> Ooh, well, those are, that's that's a good. Those are a good few ones. Yeah, and it was funny because he's showing me. And I'm like, and granted, one of the books I gave up was Walking Dead number one. Just to let you know, because uh, <laughs> I had no connection to it. I, mm. I read it, and I read it because I was looking at competition more so than entertainment. Mm. Um, so I, you know, and I have these things. You know, and I, I got rid of a lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of stuff, uh, <laughs> a lot of runs of things. And but but these four books is you know because I, I have a. a, a Spider Man is probably my yeah I, I can say it now Spider Man is my favorite character okay I admit it um, but, uh, <laughs> you, you kept that in for twenty years right twenty years took me twenty years I, I don't think I don't think it was a really well kept secret <laughs> 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 if you read sideways uh, but anyway <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was but I, I have a certain collection that starts at a certain point so to have a uh, number one in Five is Doctor Doom, and six is the Lizard, and seven is the second third of the Vulture. Mm. Uh, you know, these are books that you never. I uh, even for everything I've done in my life, I would never buy for myself. I just could, could never spend that money on myself. You know, I'd rather buy a hundred books than a hundred dollar book. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, to have that now, and it's like, wow, okay. You know, I guess I should have bought it when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dan, again, yeah. thank you so much for taking so much time to talk with me today. I mean, I could, I feel like I could, I mean, obviously you worked in the industry for so long, I could have had eight hours more of questions, but I appreciate you spending the last hour and a half with me. My pleasure, sir. It's fine. I, yeah, I guess, like I said, I was going to be quick, but once you get me talking, especially having, you, you, you got me with reboot, mister, I have to say. It. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> any chance I get to talk about Reboot, I always do because it's just like I said, it's that special moment in time, uh, and it's it's fun to fun to. If anything, just give that shout out to all those great people that worked there in those days that I, mm-hmm. that I still keep in touch with. Um, Again, I was a, the little Canadian boy who loved that that series, and you know, I, I was I was tuning in every time there was a new episode. I I remember seeing it advertised on buses, and I was just because I'd watched those first two seasons and I liked them, but yeah, season three was something special, and I always go yeah, back to it. I, I I have it on DVD. I've shown it to my son, who's eight years old now, and he like loves that that third season because again, there's so much interesting, fun, exciting stuff. It doesn't pull any punches. It really goes for the jugular, and you get rewarded by it for by the end. Yeah. Oh no, listen, I'll tell you that between, between that and that period of time at DC, between Countdown to Infinite Crisis to, to Fifty Two, was probably my uh, probably my two creative highlights of my life. So Excellent. it's fun to fun to fun to bring them up. Well, again, thank you so much. You have a great evening, but uh, thank you so much for regaling us for some great stories. You got it. My pleasure. Good luck with with your podcast here, sir. Thank you.